0: for me especially growing up with my upbringing and then just personality wise being more introverted and being you know one of the few being female and then being Asian American female you just don't see a lot of those types of people in leadership positions it was certainly something that i had to really embrace the fact that you know what i'm not going to be i can't be that extroverted leader that's just not me but i really want to show that being an introvert and being who i am it's absolutely possible to lead a company very effectively. And in fact, there's a lot of advantages that I have and really kind of lean into that versus trying to change who I was.
1: Hey everyone, this is Jay.
2: And this is Angie.
1: And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two.
2: Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place.
1: Today, we're excited to speak with Christine Tsai, a founding partner and current CEO of 500 Startups. 500 Startups is an early stage startup accelerator that has invested in over 2400 companies across 77 countries around the world. Their portfolio includes Credit Karma, Grab, Twilio, and many others. Before founding 500 Startups, Christine spent time as a product marketing manager at Google and grew up in the Bay Area.
2: In This episode, we speak with Christine about how she built up the muscle for taking risks in her career, despite being raised to seek security embracing her unique style as an introverted leader who's also a ferocious mama bear, and the differences in cultural and business norms between the United States and many of the global markets 500 operates in. Christine, thank you so much for coming on with us today. We're super excited for this conversation. And the way we'd like to start it off is with asking you what your favorite dish was growing up. It can be a family dish, it can be, you know, Burger King. (laughs) What was that dish for you? So the
0: dish that has was my favorite growing up, and I think even to this day is is a is a is a long time favorite is this Korean dish called Tokmandukuk, uh, which is basically like a, a soup. Koreans are big on soups, um, so there's soup and uh, rice cakes, like sticky rice cakes and dumplings, and there's a lot of variations of it. But that was always, you know, by far ever since I was a kid, my favorite, even to this day. Like my mom we'll make it. She thinks we don't eat anything. She's kind of typical Korean mom thinking like, what do you eat all day? Or like, what do you eat every day? So she'll make it, bring this big jar of soup, you know, like all the fixings. And then we prepare it at home with, you know, for the kids. But that was always anything with, I think the sticky rice, like whether it's the thuk or, in, you know, Chinese like niangao, gao, mochi, it's always like, I'm. I, it's a weakness for me. <laughs> But um, then, I, I mean, what, what Angie mentioned Burger King, like I, 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 I do have to make a plug, like the other favorite chain growing up was is for me is Taco Bell. <laughs> I know it's, it's odd that it's such a polarizing chain. I feel like people love it or hate it. And I definitely probably have lost respect from some people because I'm so vocal about how much I love that chain. But it's just from childhood was always a big part of growing up. It was always something I was fond. It was a treat. And so it's, it's still a favorite for me. <laughs>
2: And that love is super evident that just reminded me of this um vlog post i saw you post a few oh, yeah. years back of you and your team going to taco bell and it's yes. like you guys doing a photo shoot in front of the the, the store and that was just oh, so. oh that was a great day yes yeah so you can definitely sense that the taco bell
1: love you know you mentioned right before this call that there were a certain nuances between going from elementary school to high school and then to college uh, What um, reference to your own Asian American identity, and then some of the differences of being Korean, but also being kind of melded together with all of the re- the rest of the Asian Americans that were in your high school. Can you share a little bit more about that perspective and and kind of how that has led, and kind of what that background was for you?
0: As someone who grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, I think that it's it's an, it's kind of an interesting position as an Asian American because uh, when I grew up, and I think what you you alluded to as a child. In elementary school, for me, that was kind of the you know late '80s, late '80 timeframe. I was typically the only Asian kid. Interestingly, I, the experience was generally okay. I mean, there certainly were the the racist comments of "chink" or you know Chinese like Chinese pumpkin, which is the weirdest insult to me. But I remember you know my my defense back to them was, "I'm not Chinese." <laughs> Thinking like so victorious, like haha, they're calling me Chinese. Um, names, but little do they know I'm actually Korean. But then as I moved into high school, there were more Asian Americans. So I think maybe a different experience for those who grew up in other parts of the U.S. And it certainly was not a majority minority um, population at the time, but you know, by 90s standards, it was probably an above average Asian population, maybe I would say 15 to 20%. Now, now my high school is probably like 99% Asian, which is interesting, but I think that I you know that experience certainly being around a lot of other Asian Americans in some ways it you know there were some positives, but I think one of the nuances that you mentioned was I was one of the very few Korean Americans growing up in that in that city and in, in that high school. So, you know, vast majority of my friends were Chinese or you know specifically Taiwanese American, my boyfriend you know now turned husband <laughs> now is is also Taiwanese American so there is an element of that where you know that is somewhat part of my identity but then it's just an interesting experience because for a long time because I just it was hard for me to identify with other Koreans there was a big culture shock going to college where I went to Berkeley, a lot of Asians, of course, but a lot of Koreans, especially from Southern California and other parts of the country. And it was hard for me to connect with them. And so I think for some period, I probably kind of rejected that a bit thinking I don't fit in with my own people. I kind of, I think I fit in with with Taiwanese people because I grew up around them, but I'm not really part of their group. And then all the while, everyone sees you as all, you know, all look the same. You're all the same. So I, I've I've seen you know others who are also Korean American maybe go through that similar type of experience where you're just sort of um, one otherized by the rest of the world like you're all Asian or you don't belong here but two even your own culture is not recognized and it's it's this weird um, thing you know where you just kind of feel this um, you're just kind of a strange feelings about like your identity um, where it's it's you know you're certainly you feel American but then you're in hyphenated American let alone. You're you're Korean American, but then you know how well do you connect with that? So I feel like I've come full circle a bit in terms of it's not something I reject anymore. I'm I'm proud of it, but you know it is very much an an experience that's unique to me in terms of growing up the way I did, and it's um, the way I identify with being Korean is different from others.
1: On on this um, path of growing up, Christine, I know in college uh, you were part of a a theater group that was uh, specifically for Asian Americans. How did that experience play into you understanding a little bit more about your identity finding community because it, it seems like it would it would have left a pretty big impact on me if I can find like a community meant specifically or like something that you're really interested in, in this case performing what was that like for you
0: that group was called theater rice so I, I that was one of I think the first Asian American theater group at Cal and it was a really unique group I was I was not really part of kind of that main kind of main cast or main group. I was more um, like kind of special acts as, as it relates to perform like dance performances. Um but certainly, I, I knew a lot of people in that group, spent time with them in terms of rehearsals. And I thought it was really unique because it was very much out there saying, you know, we want a space for Asian Americans in theater, which is an industry that you don't see a lot of Asian Americans in. And it's probably, the, the path not taken and not certainly not encouraged by a lot of you know Asian families or parents. So I think having that space for creativity, changing that representation of Asians in, in media and of course this is a student group so you know it wouldn't be anything mainstream. it would just be for, for the campus. but you know I thought that was actually you know at the time, you know reflecting back certainly was very progressive because I think there was probably that mentality of you know Asians are not a minority or but you know, I think that had a, you know, definitely an impact in terms of me personally, more on the creative side as, as someone who grew up as a dancer and, and I feel like still, still a dancer, although I'm pretty out of shape, but um, you know, that too, just having that space, because where else would you get that opportunity? And especially in a space where others, you see others that you know, look like you, you don't see that in, in a lot of times.
2: It's so important. And that reminds me of this phrase, you can't be what you can't see right? To this idea of visibility of representation, which seems like it's what you found in that performing arts group. I want to tie upbringing and your college experience into this idea of values for a bit. So in one of your tweets earlier, I think last month, you had something along the lines of grit, human, resilient, inclusive, humble, and some other values that I'm assuming are very meaningful to you. So I'd love for you to explain that tweet and also tie that into how you feel like your upbringing was able to shape your personal professional identity a bit and also these things that you value.
0: It's funny because there's so much that can happen behind something that's a very simple tweet and this is, you know there's a lot to unpack and I feel like um, for me sometimes every now and then a lot of what I tweet Actually, probably isn't about venture capital or startups, unless maybe it's you know maybe it's something five hundred related. And part of this is because VC Twitter sometimes it drives me nuts with just the types of things that you know are discussed. And I feel like I don't want to add to that because um, I I don't think I can add anything valuable. So I end up tweeting all sorts of random things. Like I think if like it's about food or dance, and you know of course startup tech, but I, I do feel like that's something I, I I want to try to work on. But you know every now and then there'll be these random quotes that look like it was done by like the tiny Buddha, <laughs> like there, there's some like those um, wellness Twitter channels. And for me, sometimes like I, I know that tweet in, in very specifically, there, there's always some reason for me to when I send out these like cryptic tweets. But I think that was just kind of an, an encapsulation of maybe things that I felt like I valued or not necessarily that I felt like I did well or, you know, I wanted to aspire to, I want our firm to aspire to. So in terms of those, those are all values um, or adjectives, however you call it, that to me, I think I really resonate with and have really embraced in terms of what values are ones that were shaped by my upbringing. It's probably like a, a couple of them that are around like the grit and humility, resilience. I think for a lot of immigrant families, especially, you know, Asian, you know, Asian families, these are things that I think are modeled quite a bit by our parents. Um, you know, very typical of immigrant parents: getting things done, working hard, you know, like doing good work, um, not standing out, and being humble. My parents—they didn't come from, you know, massive wealth and and having that financial cushion. You know, when they came to the U.S., they were really on their own. They had to start things from the ground up. And if you can imagine, during that time, this is like the 70s even harder barriers to cross but and and I I saw that growing up my mom you know she's retired now but she was for many years you know she was a is actually an engineer at Intel and she was probably one of the few you know Asian women engineers and seeing her work very long hours and you know same for my my dad had his own firm as a as a general contractor so both of them were just very you know they worked very hard and I I saw that, that myself growing up and you know we also you know, didn't have much outside help in terms of, you know, the, the, even to this day, me hiring a like someone to clean my house, like I still haven't done it. To me, it's just, I don't know if it's just something ingrained, but I just think like, it's such a luxury and like, I can do it myself. But I feel like a lot of that comes from just how you were raised. Now, in terms of the things that I feel like were maybe shaped, you know, shaped me personally and professionally that weren't necessarily from my upbringing, maybe they were more learned. And this is kind of goes to the point about, Kind of Asian American upbringing, and sometimes that clashes, and sometimes it complements. Just being able to operate professionally is, I think, the the values about being inclusive, kind of agile, transcendent, kind of the the things that are more around the softer skills or the relationships, or even like really just kind of stems towards being a leader, like more leadership. Like those are not necessarily things that are shunned by any means in terms of like how I was raised, but they just weren't that explicit. It was just. Um, a lot more about like how you connect with people and how you influence and, and how you um, keep going after adversity.
1: Christine, one of the other tweets that um, you've mentioned, and I love, I love being able to take a look at any guest tweets to see like what their public record is and what their what's on their mind. Another one was, you know, quote, anything can become a habit, build up productive ones, unlearn destructive ones. Really curious on the two parts there. What are some of the habits that you've been able to learn but almost more importantly, what are some of those habits that you've had to unlearn? And especially in the context of, of Asian American identity, I remember like one of our really poignant conversations with Deb Liu, who is the current CEO of Ancestry.com, she talked a lot about how she needed to unlearn like how to be just the normal you know, Asian American leader, Asian American woman. And her parents would be teaching her these certain skills that in the workforce, it wouldn't actually really actualize itself and it wouldn't be the best for her.
0: Well, in terms of the the productive ones, like the ones that you would keep building up, I think it is it is it is kind of what I referred to before in terms of that grid and persistence and working hard. I mean, those are there's there's by all means those are still very productive and and positive things, and I I actually feel like you know taking that a step further, I think that and I see this in how I've chosen to lead 500 is one of my old colleagues from Google, he actually put this really well on a tweet, uh, but Gokul Rajaram, he had, he, he shared something that was something like, um, you know, as a leader, you need to spend, you need to be able to spend time in the clouds, um, essentially kind of the strategy and vision, but also get your, you know, spend time in the dirt, like getting your hands dirty. You need execs who can do both. If someone is too much in the clouds and can't actually you know execute or get their hands dirty, then that's maybe not a good fit, depending on your organization. I feel like that's very much the case in terms of the productive habits, like being able to not be above something or thinking, I don't do that. right. And for me, I, I, I've actually probably had to, in terms of the unlearn, probably learn how to delegate better or think that my time is better spent doing something else, not Cleaning up this and that, um, some people can do it much better than I can. So I think, you know, in terms of going into the things that I've had to maybe unlearn, it is certainly around knowing that even if I'm not the one doing the work, hence delegating, like that's that's okay. It doesn't mean that I'm not. Um, just I'm, I'm, my contributions are different, especially at this, at this point in my career and and the position I sit in, it's actually doing a disservice to my team. If I don't feel like it it may come off to them as I'm not trusting them to be able to take this responsibility because I'm so accustomed to, I'll just get it done. Some small thing, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. It's, it's much easier if I just do it. Right. And that may be very typical if you're used to just being hands-on and learning to just do things yourself and be independent. But again, it comes at a cost to potentially training others and developing talent, but the other, the one thing that came to mind is this whole sense of kind of risk reward, security, taking risks. I think that in some ways, if you look back for like my parents and any immigrant parent, it's a big risk to, to come to a country they don't know. Fortunately for my parents, they, they did speak English when they came here. And that was something that I think, you know, it's not the case for all parents. And it does uh, make it harder. So that is a risk, but I I think certainly growing up, you know, they weren't necessarily encouraged me to go take a big risk, go start a company, go, go move to, you know, a foreign country for a few years and learn, like they're very much accustomed to, you got to have security and, you know, don't take too many risks. You got to be safe because, you know, understandably that was their path here. Like they didn't want to stand out too much and they just wanted what was best for their kids and to, to put them or encourage them to go into a position where it didn't seem like it was a stable, you know, you know, pay the bills. It's not something that they're going to push their kids for. But I think that's also something that I've, I've had to, I don't know if it was unlearn per se, but just kind of build up that muscle that, you know what, taking risks is a good thing. I mean, certainly in venture capital and certainly in startups, you, it's all about taking that risk. So taking kind of that uncharted path is something that I feel like I've had to be more, it's a muscle of a head to develop. Um, and that goes into, I think, leadership in terms of the types of risks you take, turning no's into yes and not taking no for an answer. I think those are all things that you didn't you don't really learn growing up, especially for most Asian Americans. And it's something that sometimes can you know be a challenge, um, especially when you're in the workplace.
2: A couple things there. So one I resonate so much with the delegation and the house cleaning points. And I think there's almost like a an undercurrent there, right? Where for house cleaning, there's some dimension of I can do this just as well. Also some dimension of I feel uncomfortable having someone else do this for me because it's, yes. you know, the in the weeds work. It's not like the, the glamorous sexy work. So I'm almost seeing like a parallel there between leadership and in the house cleaning, which is funny. And on the second point. I wanna tie this into your leadership style, Christine. So you're a self-proclaimed introverted leader. I've seen some folks also call you just the, the mama bear of the office, which is the, this just the, the sweetest like moniker ever. So oh, I vicious. love that. <laughs> what was that? Vicious.
0: Oh, mama, um, bears are mama bears are vicious. So maybe that's I don't
2: know. <laughs> sweet <laughs> when they can be and vicious when there's like a, someone trying to attack. So yes. I love that. I love that dichotomy there. So I, I, I'd love to learn more about how you grew into this leadership style, right? Could you talk to us about the journey of how you embrace a style? And especially since a style isn't the archetype you really see in venture, right? We're talking about VC Twitter a bit earlier, and I think that is a good representation of what kind of personalities you see in, in the VC space and i'd love for you to talk about how you've managed to navigate this style of leadership in a narrative and a ecosystem that seems to reflect the complete opposite
0: it's so interesting if you if if i tell you about what i was like when i was a kid so i don't know how this change happened but you know early in my childhood when i was a 3 or 4 years old i was very loud very assertive i would not be shy about telling people what to do i'd yell at them i'd yell at you know fellow kids and like slap them if they didn't do what I said, and so I'm, i I think that little little kid is still there because it'll come out every so often. I think maybe that's my true self. I don't know, but you know somehow that got buried, and there's like many, 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 many layers now. And I think all throughout childhood, growing up, you know, even to this day, people see me as, as very quiet, and and I think that was always a thing. Growing up in, in school, my teachers would say, Christine does so well in school and you know, good, great, like such a talented writer, but she, I, she's so quiet. She doesn't say anything. And my mom would also be like, you need to talk more. So my parents were certainly like, especially my mom, were, you know was encouraging me, like, you need to speak up. Um, you know, people are going to step all over you. But I just didn't feel that it just, it just wasn't how I processed information. It was just so obviously, you know, I, I'm very introverted. I think on the Myers-Briggs, the I is very, very strong. But I do think there is this misconception about being introverted as being not confident, not friendly, shy. It's not necessarily about that. It's actually just more where you draw your energy from. So like if you think about having meetings back to back all day, at the end of it, an introvert like me would be so drained. I just need to be by myself, watch Netflix. Extroverts, they feed off of that energy. They, they love meeting people. So now I think what you said with Especially in the VC world, it's kind of the you know exact opposite, where there's it's a lot about people speaking up and 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 kind of having this conviction and, and ruffling feathers and and I would say that when I was exploring leaving Google earlier in my career, you know I was interested in VC for a while, but to me it just didn't seem like something that was an option. Or um, and I, I certainly would be told, well, you know, women in VC are really really you have to be really aggressive and really loud and you're essentially like you're, you're too quiet, you're not like that. And, and I think if you look at who's held up as a leader, it is those kind of, quote, visionary, charismatic types. So I think growing up, and then if you unpack that further in terms of how this plays into Asian cultures, there's this really good book that I read called Quiet. Um, so it's about introverts and it's written by, I think, Susan Kane. There's an entire chapter about Asian Americans and being quiet and it profiles some people at Monta Vista High School in Cupertino and it, it talks about how kind of that in, more introverted, quiet culture is is more common with with Asian cultures, at least in you know in Asia, and keeping your head down, not causing trouble, but like speaking up, like all the things that you see in, in high school here and in workplaces here, it's just not a thing in, in Asia. So I think you know at least what was profiled here with with a lot of the asian students you know studying is cool like being good at school is cool it's it's like if you're not then you're not cool but that's very specific to kind of a certain culture but again when you go onto the real world you know it doesn't always happen that way so i think that for me especially growing up with my upbringing and then just personality wise being more introverted and being you know one of the few being female and then being asian american female you just don't see a lot of those types of people in leadership positions. I think that's where, you know, when I left Google um, to start 500 and then a few years later became CEO, it was certainly something that I had to really embrace the fact that, you know what, I'm not going to be, I can't be that extroverted leader. That's just not me. But I really want to show that being an introvert and being who I am, it's absolutely possible to lead a company very effectively. And in fact, there's a lot of advantages that I have and really kind of lean into that versus trying to change who I was it's still something I think to this day, it's always kind of a challenge just because the expectation by society is to be extroverted and loud. And, you know, this is what people are accustomed to, but, you know, I do think it's, it's made for a much more inclusive environment and team. And, you know, I, I hope, hopefully it's, it, it sets a good example.
1: I love that. And especially... On your, pre- on your last point of being able to lean into who you should be rather than what people expect you to be. Two, two quick questions on a, as a follow-up on that. One, I know we've talked about it adjacently, but we'd love to kind of hear what you're doing right now at 500 Startups, what 500 Startups is. And, and also, I know we talked about this this idea of a mama bear which and for, for my, my first reconception of that was like, oh, like really sweet and nice. And then you just mentioned, no, like they will hurt you if, if, <laughs> if you're messing with their kids. I would love to hear any like potential stories or memories that you have of being a mama bear to one of your founders and, and how that's actually really helped their company or helped them. But also kind of hear um, a little bit more about what, what you do at a 500 Startups and maybe transition into if you have any of those memories or stories.
0: Well, 500 is a a global venture capital firm that is based in Silicon Valley, but we have a presence all around the world, and we've been investing for the past 10 years in both in Silicon Valley and outside of the U.S. And in 2010, that was certainly a very contrarian perspective, that you could find great companies, you could find these opportunities outside of Silicon Valley, let alone outside the U.S. And so we took an approach on investing in early stage, as well as the fact that we felt it, it writing a check is important at the early stage, but what founders really need is an entire ecosystem around that. And if you think about Silicon Valley, that ecosystem is very mature. It's you know had the benefit of you know thirty, you know forty years to develop um, into you know having an investment ecosystem, you know kind of corporates, other founders. So it's just very rich. That doesn't exist outside of the U.S. Now, today in 2021, it's it's these different regions have grown so quickly. But, you know, and I, I think especially with with COVID, even more so, that's accelerated things even faster in terms of kind of that distribution of, of resources and access to capital, but there's still a long way to go. And so we made that bet in 2010 that that's what was going to happen. So 10 years later, we have invested in more than 2,500 companies around the world. Um, we have about 20, more than 20 kind of unicorn companies, and they're, it actually really well represents their global you know, a good number of them are from outside of the U.S., so that's a bit about 500. And then, in terms of examples of Mama Bear, I think that definitely comes from that sense of you know being collaborative and, and kind of maybe more the 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 more po- kind of quote positive or more open things in terms of being supportive and the empathy. I also will I, I joked about like you know attacking people. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I I don't know if it's that, but just more that if I feel like there's something that's if it's my founder or my team, like that, that loyalty is, is very strong. But in terms of like an example, I'll, I'll try to keep it very high level. So it's not specific, but I do remember, you know, one of our founders was going through an acquisition process and she came to me and said that the acquirer keeps walking terms back and, you know, retrading things. And can you get on the phone with me to talk to them and essentially express your disappointment on, on these. So it was all prepped and, you know, jump on the call with this acquirer, and I, I definitely took the position of essentially you're, you guys are not, um, you're, you're not doing this in good faith. And, and I think that I think had some influence. I mean, ultimately the company did get acquired, but I think just having her feeling like there was some support on her end from one of their bigger shareholders to apply pressure to that acquire, I, I certainly had no problems trying to make that clear to them. But it is that sense of being protective of like my cubs or my, my people, I guess is uh,
2: where that comes from. And as someone in corporate development on the acquirer side, that just makes me so nervous.
1: <laughs> oh, really? oh, really? Oh, that's a good
2: If uh, we ever do a deal and she, you're involved in Christine, oh man, oh.
0: Oh yeah, i got to make so sure to stay on
2: Christine's good side. Oh, that's a good, that's a good,
0: uh, I, I I always have this perception that, for, you know, for the acquirers, especially when it's a, you know, like a huge company, like they
2: don't care, but oh, all right. <laughs> oh. <laughs> good things to keep in mind. Good things to keep in mind. And I think one of the things that is, The coolest about 500 startups is that like you said it is a global organization right so really embodying this idea that great talent and great companies can come from anywhere and right now i think the the last time i checked you guys had a presence in like more than 20 countries which is really amazing and tying this back to leadership which we spoke about a bit earlier Leadership looks a bit different in different parts of the world. For example, the most obvious is Eastern versus Western leadership. Someone in Asia would act differently than they would in America and those different behaviors would be rewarded in different ways. And I'm curious from your experience leading this global organization, what have you noticed are some traits of yours from a leadership perspective that resonate a lot across cultures? And is there anything that you feel like American professional culture tends to value more than you see other cultures value.
0: With a global organization and and in a portfolio and stakeholders, you know, we do sit in that in a pretty unique position in terms of seeing how business gets done, how, you know, how founders raise money, how LPs, you know, back funds and, and just, there's so much in terms of cultural norms in different markets that then spill over into how business gets done. So I think what resonates across cultures in terms of leadership is I do think it is having kind of that strong conviction on like the direction of the company and conveying that, and I do think also that plus leading by example. I think that resonates across all cultures that you you lead by example in terms of like how you want your your employees to operate or you know your team. In terms of what's distinctly American, I kind of touched upon one, but I think the the other that I've I've definitely noticed, and this this is what is would be like my immediate answer is Americans are very sometimes seen as very transactional and don't necessarily care about long-term relationships. Like they'll come in to a market and there's so many examples of American companies trying to expand globally and it doesn't work and then they retreat. And so people think, oh, they're not really invested in this country or this, this region. So there's a lot of examples where you know, that's the case now. There's, there's positives to that in terms of it's very efficient, <laughs> maybe in some ways you just get things done. But I think what that fails to do in in the perception in many other cultures is that it's not focused on relationships, like there's no concern for the people and and kind of building that trust, you know, certainly like American culture and and people, you know, as human beings. Sure, they, they do care about relationships, but I think when it comes to professional culture, and you see it even when you look at founders who are raising money. In the Silicon Valley, it's very easy. You just, you meet someone for the first time and then you you want to pinch your company and that's just kind of expected. Um, You know, it may or may not work like that all around the world. Like they want to get to know you and they want to build a relationship first. So I, I do think that there's some certainly nuances to that all around the world, especially as these cultures develop with, with startup and early stage.
1: Yeah, I resonate with that point deeply. And I think a lot of other like, broader, the Pan-Asian community would is like the importance of relationships, even in a professional setting. It, it, I hope that that is something that continues to be more important as we become more globalized, as we work with people from outside North America or Western countries, as we kind of wrap up here and you've already provided like a lot of really great tidbits and, and perspectives and advice, but I wanted to kind of create the space to, for you to share if, you know, is there anything that you would like to portray as advice or something that you did really well early in your career that has set you up well for success?
0: I, I, I think one of the things I mentioned earlier in terms of taking risks, I, I think that is probably the, one of the best things that I've done. Now, it's all relative, of course, because when I think back in hindsight, you know, at the time, I probably thought, oh, this is a risk. But, you know, nowadays it does. It seems like, you know, um, small potatoes. But I think the, the general theme is around in terms of taking risks is, is going after something, even if you don't feel ready or you feel like you're it's very intimidating or the odds seem against you. I think honestly, the only times I've regretted anything in terms of the career is when I didn't do it or I self-selected myself out because I thought, oh, I'm out of my element. Like, you know, I don't want to say my opinion, I don't want to go after that, I'm not gonna get it, like, or people are gonna laugh at me. So I think it's just that that fear of rejection, feel of failure, fear of failure. So I think, you know, for me, whether it was, you know, applying, you know, maybe applying for jobs or during my time at Google trying to go go you know do an internal like go after something that you know I got rejected for and then trying again and turning that no into a yes I think those are all things that you know when you think about your career just going back to again resisting maybe a little bit of that upbringing on playing it safe and being secure so I would definitely say being being um, willing to just go for it and, and take that risk is is good for professionally. It'll help you grow. And, you know, the worst thing that happens is, you know, you, you fail or you get rejected. And then, you know, then at that point you can then make that decision on, am I going to keep trying turning that no into a yes. So I think certainly applies in, in positions where you're selling or in a negotiation process, recruiting people, but those are all skills you have to learn that, you know, you just, you know, it's not a closed door.
1: Christine, thank you so much. I think that's a fantastic way to to wrap up this episode. Thanks again for coming on. Thanks to Ravi for the introduction as well. Uh, Really appreciated your time, your insight, your thoughtfulness. It was a pleasure having you on.
2: Thanks so much for tuning in to Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it.
1: And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time.